You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Our God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for calling us to this place and for your word, and we pray that you would open our hearts uh, today to hear what you would have to say to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so I want to finish verse 1 today uh, in Ephesians chapter 1, uh, verse 1, because last week, you remember, if you were here, uh, the... The idea of what it meant to be an apostle and the apostolic truth that is passed down from generation to generation, sometimes called apostolic succession. And the apostolic succession is not um, this bishop put his hands on this bishop who put his hands on this bishop who put his hands on… that that is uh, historically uh, untrue. There's no way that we can trace that back. And so, uh, apostles… Uh, in the biblical term, when it comes to the Bible, is apostles, that was an office that died off with the last apostle, because in order to qualify as an apostle in the Bible, you have to have seen the risen Lord Jesus. You would have to have had a physical encounter with Him, and you can go back and listen to why all that is. The Greek word uh, apostle means to be sent out, to be sent. And so, if really, the closest thing that we have to it in modern day is not a bishop, but probably a missionary. Uh, A missionary is one uh, who is sent. And we talked about the importance of apostolic succession and passing on the teaching, uh, the apostolic truth that uh, has been given to us to the generations to come. Uh, Paul talks about this an awful lot. Uh, some verses you might want to look at, uh, 1 Corinthians 15.3 and following, uh, Titus 1.9, uh, the letter of Jude, uh, verse 3, uh, but also uh, when Paul is talking to Timothy, and you remember when he opens up his letter to Timothy, he gives thanks to God for his mother and grandmother. Why? Because of those successive generations that passed on the gospel to Timothy. And I'm sure that if we were all to think about our own lives, that we would uh, give thanks to God for the person who passed on the gospel to us, who introduced us to the Lord Jesus Christ. And for most of us, maybe even all of us, that's not going to be a Billy Graham type. No doubt a pastor has been used, I hope so, uh, in your life to draw you closer to the Lord Jesus. But when it comes to first knowing Jesus as Lord and Savior, more often than not, it's someone that is not written down in the pages of history. It's a grandmother. It's a mother. It's a Sunday school teacher. Uh, it, it may be your neighbor. That's apostolic succession, and that's passing on the apostolic truth. So in that sense, all of us are apostles. All of us are apostles in the sense that we're passing on the message of the apostles to successive generations. Now, I want to talk uh, a little bit about um, uh, not just what it means in our families and personally, but I want to finish up today talking about uh, what it means in the life of the church, because often people will think that a bishop is a successor to the apostles, and I would say yes insofar as they're passing on the apostolic truth. So, uh, Back in the day uh, of um, when, um, uh, when the early church fathers were writing, this is right after the New Testament time, um, 
and the articles talk about this as well, that they would say that, that even if you had a bad bishop, and let's say this bad bishop baptized you, or this bad bishop ordained you, or this bad bishop uh, gave you communion, um, it didn't mean that, that those were invalid. Uh, but what it does mean is that really if they're not passing on the apostolic truth of the gospel, then they're really no bishop at all. And so the church for the longest time took a really hard line uh, against bad bishops. Now, if you read your New Testament, there is no differentiation in the New Testament between a presbyter or an elder, is how it's normally translated, and an overseer or a bishop. Those words are used interchangeably. In fact, in Acts chapter 20, when uh, Paul is uh, visiting with the Ephesian elders, uh, I want to hear, this is an apostolic passage I want to read to you. This is verse 17. Now, from, Mil- from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus, Miletus is just south of Ephesus in um, in modern-day Turkey, and called the elders of the church to come to him, right, the presbyters of the church. And when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you in the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, that's the Roman province, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus Christ, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves, and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. That sounds like a pretty great bishop, (laughs) Uh, doesn't it? Uh, But not only that, but did you notice that the elders were gathered together and he talked about the ministry of oversight. That's that's the word for bishop, uh, episkopos, uh, that is used here. So the modern idea of being a bishop is something that somebody that has been set apart for a certain task because of circumstances that were brought about in the life of the early church. And ironically, uh, the reason why bishops became a different sort of segment uh, or a different office uh, was because of heresy. And there was a need in the church to try to guard against heresy, and they thought the bishops uh, that having an office of bishop that looks more like today, that that would help in keeping heresy at bay. But up to that point, uh, until really uh, the third century, uh, in any given congregation, you would have multiple elders and bishops. They were one and the same. Uh, so these elders that he called from Ephesus were also considered bishops uh, as well. 
And so I don't want us to think uh, that uh, modern-day bishops are at all successors of the apostles uh, any more than you and I are, except in that they stand in the apostolic truth. And how that's been defined through the ages and how Paul defined it. Did you hear that in Acts, Acts 20 where he's talking about what he handed to them? This is what I gave to you of first importance of who Jesus Christ is, what he came into the world to do. And then he commissions them by saying, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. And before that, he says, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. And so there's a lot of conversation right now uh, as to what constitutes orthodoxy within the life of the church. What does it mean to be orthodox? And by that, I don't mean I'm going to grow a beard like George, but longer, and, uh, and, and walk around in sort of a, a can-looking hat. I'm not talking about Eastern Orthodox, but Orthodox in, in right believing. How do you know if you're Orthodox in your belief? Well, some people will go so far as to say, well, if you believe in the creeds. And you ought to believe in the creeds, absolutely. Hear how the Articles of Religion put it uh, when it comes to the creeds. Uh, the three creeds, the Nicene Creed, Athanasius Creed, and that which is commonly called the Apostles' Creed, ought thoroughly to be received and believed, for they may be proved by mo most certain warrants of Holy Scripture. It's right to believe in the creeds. We ought to uh, they ought to thoroughly be received and believed, but why is it that we ought to believe in those creeds? because they are proved by most certain warrants of Holy Scripture. So being orthodox is not simply saying, well, I believe the creeds. That, you, you ought to believe the creeds. Uh, but it's actually believing uh, the creeds in the sense that I believe in them uh, because we can derive those truths from the Word of God. And so to be orthodox is to actually submit yourself to God's Word and to try to live your life in conformity to it. And that's where things kind of get a little bit pear-shaped, especially in the life of the church. Now, I do think that there's a big difference between somebody who's struggling and saying, man, I read this in the Bible, and I don't know about all that. And somebody who says, I read this in the Bible, and God is simply wrong. Hebrews talks uh, about this at length, um, if you want to take a look at that, especially from chapter 11, uh, moving on. And I think there's also a difference between uh, somebody who's sitting in the pew and struggling with belief, or maybe even saying, you know, I don't know that I believe that, and somebody who's standing in the pulpit saying, you know, I really don't believe that. I, I've had clergy friends. One told me one time that, that, they, um, that they had someone who came to them and said, um, I don't know that I can believe all of the apostles in Nicene Creed. I don't know that I can believe some of the things that they're teaching. And this clergy friend of mine said, well, you should just do what I do, which is to cross your fingers at those parts that you don't believe in when you say it. Well, I'd never go to that church ever again. Craig Smalley heard the funniest conversation at lunch one day. He came back and told me, and he said there were some ladies, and I won't mention uh, the synagogue, uh, but there were some ladies who uh, attended a local synagogue, and one of the ladies said, look, I am really, really liberal, and that's okay for me, but not for my rabbi. 
He, he needs to be straight and narrow. Me, me on the other, whatever about me. And I think that there's a little bit of, of truth to that, that, that the job of a, of a pastor, uh, an overseer, a presbyter, uh, is to shepherd the flock. And can you imagine having a shepherd who's just like, yeah, I don't know. I don't know about all that. You know, if you want to eat that grass, eat that grass. If you want to eat those, that poisonous plant, you go ahead and eat that poisonous plant because it's all going to be well in the end. That's just ridiculous. In fact, Jesus has a word for these people. He says they're hirelings. That when the wolf comes over the ridge, what does the hireling do? The hireling says, you know what, I don't really believe this stuff. And off they go. And they're left to the woods. What does the shepherd do? The shepherd actually stands between the wolf and the flock. That's what a shepherd does. That's, what, that's an apostolic ministry. That's the whole idea of being an overseer. And funny enough, the 1979 prayer book even says this when a bishop is consecrated, uh, is, is said to take counsel with your fellow presbyters. So even the 1979 prayer book says, you know, it's not really an elevated order, it's just a different manifestation of being an elder. It's set aside for a different role. And I feel really bad for modern-day bishops in the life of our own denomination because I would imagine it's incredibly lonely, and that's what I hear friends who become bishops say. Um, Because if you ask a bishop, what do you do? And they say, well, I pastor the pastors. And I was talking to a friend one time who said, that's what I do. I pastor the pastors in the diocese. And I said, let me get this right. You pastor the pastors in the diocese. And he said, yes. And I said, well, what does that look like? Let's see. They hear you preach one sermon a year, Can you honestly say that you know their spouse's names and their kids' names and what's actually going on in their life? And they said, no. And I said, well, then you're the worst pastor I've ever met. Now, granted, we're in a big place too, and and I may forget some of your kids' names and things like that, uh, but I look at the life and role of a bishop, and even in a diocese like ours, that's really, you only have to know 70 families if you're just pastoring the pastors in the diocese, but their time, uh, at no fault of theirs, is taken up doing ridiculous administrative tasks so that the office of bishop today in the Episcopal Church is much more that of a superintendent than it is any sort of spiritual thing. So I would never want to be a bishop uh, for all of those reasons uh, in the life of our church, Uh, but in addition to that, I can't imagine not preaching to the same congregation week in and week out. I mean, that's what Paul was saying here in Acts 20, wasn't it? How did he put it? He said, where is it? Uh, Where he said it uh, through tears. Well, I can't see it. I know it's in there in Acts 20. I just read it to you. Verse 19, thank you. Serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. Now, I'm certainly not under any attack from uh, our Jewish neighbors, uh, but nonetheless, that's what it looks like to be a pastor. In fact, uh, the old word for pastor in Anglicanism is parson. Have you all ever heard that? You know, actually, when Hugh Agricola was the rector here, he had this card that had a silhouette of him standing at one of the prayer desks reading the office, 
And in print, underneath it, it said, your parson is praying for you. And I'll hear some of the uh, older folks uh, around the Advent every once in a while call me parson, and that's kind of a holdover from certainly when Hugh Agricola was here. And I wonder if, uh, for those of you that remember Uncle John Turner, uh, whether that was true of him as well. I don't know, incidentally, it's going to show up in the adventure. John Turner used to put a little card in his correspondence that said, drive carefully, you might hurt an Episcopalian, exclamation point. And, uh, and I'm going to put that on everybody's uh, windshield um, so that you can be aware of that. Um, but the idea of a parson is the person that has been raised up in the life of the congregation to be the shepherd, to represent the congregation to God and God to the congregation. They're the person. And so Reformation architecture did a really good job of this, and if you go to certain Reformation churches, you'll look for the pulpit. A really great place to try to figure this out is, um, is if you're ever in Oxford and go to Christ Church and go into Christ Church Cathedral, which is also the college chapel, and if you look for the pulpit, it's not readily noticeable. You really actually have to look for it, and that's because it's in the middle of the congregation, because the idea is that the parson, the person, comes up out of the midst of the congregation and delivers God's Word and shepherds them in the midst of them. So those are the apostolic ideas that Paul is trying to impart to, um, uh, to the church in Ephesus. Verse 1b. We're not done with verse 1 yet. To the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Who is this letter addressed to? Obviously, the saints who are in Ephesus, but actually some of the earliest manuscripts don't include in Ephesus because what we found out later on through research and archaeological discovery and manuscripts is that Paul would often circulate letters to more than one church saying much the same thing. Now, sometimes they were very specific. 1 Corinthians is a very specific letter. But here in Ephesians, it's almost as if he has to the saints who are in blank and are faithful in Christ Jesus. In the early manuscripts we have, it says Ephesus, but there are others that actually don't include uh, Ephesus. And so just like any other letter, there are two things that you have to keep in mind. Yes, it is addressing a particular people in a particular time, but it's also addressing us as God's Word. And so you can say that this letter is not just to the Ephesians, but to the saints who are faithful in Christ Jesus. So if you read Ephesians and you think, man, this theology is kind of highfalutin and it's over my head, That's not true, because who did he write it to? The saints. He wrote it to you. Now, who or what is a saint? What are some of our ideas about what a saint is? Anybody? A laborer? A believer? A believer? Yeah, that's it. That's... That's, that's the definition. If you are a believer, you're a saint. But of course, the prevailing notion in, um, in much of our culture is that there are people who are super Christians. 
And we even use this in our common everyday. We'll say about someone, they're a saint. They're a saint. And normally it's, it's, you know, like, for instance, you can look at our marriage and say, that Lauren is a saint. Which means what? She's, she's putting up with trial, uh, she's persevering, and she's going above and beyond in her call uh, to be a wife to me. Now, all of that is, is true, but it makes a saint sound like someone who is extraordinary. Now, believers are extraordinary, but saints are, are not just Mother Teresa, because if we have that idea what will happen is exactly what happened with Mother Teresa. Do you remember that after she died, they found her journals and her diaries? Do you remember this? Where she would pour out her heart. And there were many within the Roman Catholic Church and outside of the Roman Catholic Church that tried very hard to suppress those diaries so that nobody would see them. Why? She was honest. She was willing to admit her dark nights of the soul when she not only struggled generally, but struggled with her faith. And quite frankly, I think that's the best stuff she ever wrote. It was certainly the most honest. The same would be true of C.S. Lewis, where anybody who's really into C.S. Lewis is embarrassed uh, by uh, one... Um, uh, now, what was the name of the book? Not Surprised by Joy. Yeah, maybe it is surprised by joy. It's the one where he talks about his wife dying of cancer. And, um, and people who are really into Lewis kind of say, don't read that one. Why? Because he's honest and he sounds like a frail, broken human being who's struggling with the death of his wife. So does that mean that C.S. Lewis is any less of a saint or Mother Teresa is any less of a saint? Of course not. I think that it's exactly what makes them a saint, someone who understands themselves, but moreover understands themselves in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so sainthood is not something to be aspired to. Now, there's a hymn that many of you love, and I I like it to some extent, Uh, but we don't sing it very much here anymore at the Advent. Uh, And it's uh, an All Saints uh, hymn, and it goes like this. You know it. You could sing it to me. I sing a song of the saints of God, patient and brave and true, who toiled and fought and lived and died for the Lord they loved and knew. And one was a doctor, and one was a queen, and one was a shepherdess on the green. They were all of them saints of God. And I mean God helping to be one too. Do you hear? It's aspirational. I'm just an ordinary Christian. But one day I I hope to be a saint. No, no, no. If you're in Jesus Christ, you are a saint. You belong to Him. You're a beloved child of God. Here's how the Bible describes saints. Revelation chapter 7, beginning with the ninth verse which is also read on All Saints Sunday. John said, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. 
and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God and who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne, worshiping God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. That's you and me. Right? That's, that's you and me one day, standing around the throne of God in blood-washed white robes, giving praise to the Lord Jesus Christ. I do appreciate the fact that it doesn't say, and some of those white robes had like special gold bars on them that signified rank. Uh, or even that there were some who had nicer crowns or some that seemed a little bit closer to the throne of God. No, there we are. Now, it may be that some of us are going to be closer to the throne of God. I remember um, somebody, it might have been Charles Simeon, who uh, went to uh, interview, um, no, he wouldn't have been old enough, but George Whitfield was interviewed one time uh, about uh, his ministry. And Whitfield, you remember, was part of the great Wesleyan revivals in England, and he and John Wesley had a significant falling out over issues of theology, especially Calvinism versus Arminianism. Uh, Wesley taking an Arminian position and Whitfield taking a Calvinist, Calvinistic position. And, uh, and so they kind of stayed apart from one another, and Whitfield ended up coming over to the United States. But as he was dying, the interviewer really started to push their luck and said, uh, Mr. Whitfield, do you think that you'll see John Wesley in heaven? And Whitfield said, no, I don't. And the interviewer was sort of wide-eyed. Before he could get a follow-up question out, Whitfield followed up with, because he will be so much nearer to the throne of God that I won't be able to see him. All right. So understanding ourselves, who we are in our brokenness, as Whitfield did, but understand that we're forgiven in the Lord Jesus Christ and raised to new life in Him, that is exactly uh, what makes us a saint. And it also affects uh, how we interact uh, with one another, which is exactly uh, what we're going to talk about uh, moving forward. In, in verse 2, Paul says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Not only should our individual lives be marked by grace and peace, but the life of our congregation, the life as Christians together, is it marked by grace and peace? Are we gracious to one another in the way that Whitfield was gracious to John Wesley? It didn't mean that he had to agree with Wesley, and it didn't mean that Wesley had to agree with Whitfield, but to understand and this is maybe one of the hardest things, is that there are people that you vehemently disagree with and you may not even like, but you're going to be standing next to them when you get to heaven. And I've actually had a person tell me, well, if that's what heaven is like, I don't want to go. If they're there, I don't want to be there. 
and you should be very careful what you ask for. And I know that too, that there are people in my life that even when I see them in public, my heart sinks a little bit. You know how, or, you know, you just sort of like, oh, you know, and, and you hope that they don't see you. And, and so, have you ever done that, just sort of mentally camouflage yourself, like just try to figure out how to, you know, blend in uh, as much as you possibly can? I, I can't do that. In fact, at least once a month, I will be out somewhere in public and someone will come up to me and ask me if I work in wherever it is I am, whether a department store, a pharmacy, uh, someone wanted to talk to me about their prescription uh, in a doctor's office one time. Uh, I just have that look where everyone, I must look very helpful. Um, um, but you want to just camouflage, you don't want to be seen, and yet these are the people that you actually are probably going to be in heaven with. And I think what Paul is saying here in just these three little words, grace and peace, is that of course, reconciliation will be affected when you're in heaven. When you're in heaven, there's not going to be this beef, right? There's not going to be this, I hope you don't see me on the streets of gold. Uh, you're going to be uh, as close to them, uh, much closer and more loving than even the love that you share with your husband or wife. But I think Paul would say here is that you should work to be gracious and to instill peace while you walk on this earth. And so when people look at the Advent, they say, man, that's a graceful and a peaceful place. It doesn't mean we all agree uh, on any given uh, issue. Uh, and I've told someone, I've told any number of people this, who will want to come to me and complain about something, and I'll say, I am very happy to argue with you about the gospel. <laughs> I, I will absolutely, that's a ditch I'm willing to die in. But this, this is definitely not worth getting uh, bent out of shape over what, whatever it is. And let's not mistake our preferences uh, for virtues. I mean, I, I have that problem uh, in my own life, and so I have to check myself and say, am I, am I feeling this way and, and dealing with this person this way because of my own prerogatives, and I just think I know better than them? Uh, or is this something real and significant uh, and, and spiritual. And of course, most of us have gotten to a place where we've had a falling out for the, with an individual, and then we look back and we try to remember, now what in the world was it that we were fighting about? And it's almost as if we really try to remember. You know, we try to hold on to it. And Paul says, no, 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 no. Grace and peace to you that comes from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so if there is conflict in the life of the church, I wonder if you don't do the following things. One, that you think of yourself, and even if this person is wrong, even if they've wronged you, to remember that if it weren't for the Lord Jesus Christ, you would be that person. Two, that you would pray that God would change your heart to that person, and that to, to you they would become actually an object of mercy and compassion rather than judgment. Doesn't mean that you suspend judgment, especially if they're wrong, but especially if it's something that you could agree to disagree on, to realize this ought not to mark our relationship. And finally, and most importantly, that you actually would pray for that person. I found it that it is very, very difficult uh, to be angry with somebody and to even hate somebody if you're praying for them. 
Do you pray for your enemies? Because I find that not only does that do a work on their heart, moreover, it does a work on my heart. For the people that I'd rather not see in public, maybe even in church, that actually God needs to do a work on my heart that I would love them in the way that He loves me and indeed the way that I'm sure that He loves them uh, as well. In understanding all of this in that you're seeking out the Lord Jesus Christ, that this peace and this grace comes from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, yes, it's approaching reconciliation, it's living in grace and peace, but it's also, it's also about seeking Christ. I mean, I've been in congregations where they were so caught up on reconciling with one another that they forgot that they needed to be reconciled to God. And that's first and foremost, because unless we're reconciled to God, we'll never be reconciled with one another. And that means being a saint of God, incorporated into His kingdom as His child. Now, next week, we're going to take a big chunk, uh, so it won't be uh, just two verses. Uh, But questions, comments, concerns? All right, y'all got it all figured out. Yes, Mike. Who's right? Yeah, Ken. Yes. Yeah, that's a really good. So, uh, Ken said that the creeds are a statement of faith that binds us together as, as a congregation, and that we really can't be unified unless there's unity of belief. And that's, that's absolutely true. Uh, that, that there has to be a unity. Uh, uh, the hymn, Onward Christian Soldiers, has that line, one in truth and doctrine, right? And that's a necessary thing for a congregation to be bonded together. Because the creed, incidentally, is not just, I don't know if you knew this, but when you stand up and you declare your faith, you're actually not declaring it to God, primarily. When we state the creed, what are we doing? We're talking to one another, right? And, and we're saying, I believe this, and we're telling our neighbor, I believe in Jesus Christ. And so that, you know, that's why sometimes you'll notice when I say the creed, I kind of turn to you a little bit just so you know, I'm really a Christian. Um, up here up front. You want to say something else, Ken? Yeah, so uh, the, the role of a bishop, and, and still today, really ought to be to safeguard the truth, and, um, and the way that it's put in the prayer book is to, to drive far from the church all error uh, when it comes to, to points of doctrine. And I think that, that we're still trying to figure all of that out, um, how that works. But even when John ordained or consecrated uh, Polycarp as a bishop in Smyrna, he was still involved in the congregational life there in Smyrna. He wasn't going to a different congregation every single Sunday. So, of course, I mean, this is all church talk, and at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter. But We didn't have as many churches back then. That's right. But, but unfortunately, the church, the congregations adapted, but we never really thought more largely about the role of bishop, which uh, I, I hope that one day we do. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we thank you uh, for godly bishops and for the great tradition that has been passed on to us, Um, and Lord, that we would uh, be apostles in the sense that we pass on that truth to successive generations. 
And Lord, remind us that we are saints of God and that we've been bought uh, with the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, that uh, our life individually would be marked by grace and peace, uh, but also the life of our congregation. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.